Let's open up in prayer, why don't we? All right. Father, thank you so much for this day. We thank you because you are worthy. That is undisputed. You are worthy of our worship, our praise, our sacrifice. You are worthy of our us giving our entire lives to you because you've given your son for our lives. And uh, you're worthy. And I pray, Father, that uh, we, we come to the point of our, our worship now where we go to your word. And sometimes your word is very easy to understand. Sometimes your word is hard to understand because not because of you, but because of us. We are we're finite. And, and so, Father, sometimes we have to do the hard work to get to what you've said. And when we come to what you've said, we wind up realizing how glorious it is. <laughs> um, I, I pray, Father, that this morning is, as we get into your word now, that we will love the Lord our God with our minds. So that our hearts might be stirred to love you even more. We are to love you with everything we have. Help us to do so. We can only do so... In, Anyway, by your grace. So, Father, show us your grace and mercy, even as we get to this time of preaching and listening and applying and then walking out those doors and living the rest of our lives. And help us to do so in hope, because this is all about hope today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, I invite you to turn in your Bible again to 2 Thessalonians. And today we're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, last week... We kind of sped through chapter one. There was a ton of stuff there. I mean, I was flying by the seat of my pants a little while, uh, a little bit there. But we saw that when Jesus comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. We, we looked at that. We saw that, what, what Revelation 20 calls the lake of fire. And today we are going to talk a little bit more about some things that are going to lead up to that. Um, the day of the Lord specifically and what has to come before it. And, and so we'll get into chapter 2 today. That's where we're going to be. And looking at things that have to come before that great and terrible time. And, and I want to say really ahead of getting into this, when I prayed a minute ago that we need to love the Lord our God with our minds, I really meant that today because it's going to get a little bit technical today. Um, you might say in, in the weeds a little bit, but I promise you, well, I don't promise you, but I'm going to do my best, God willing. If you stick with me here, I think we're going to see something pretty awesome in Second Thessalonians 2. So before we read this, let me also say this. One of the great dangers when we read and study the Bible is to take a verse or to take multiple verses and impose on the Scriptures what we already believe. To, to impose maybe even what we want those verses to mean. I have been guilty of this in my life. And, and, and we, we could probably all, if we thought long enough and hard enough about it, could probably say the same thing. We, we have a tendency as, as, as fallen creatures, as people who are not yet perfected, to sometimes make the Scriptures conform to us rather than letting God's Word conform us to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. 
and, and what his will for us is. And that is something I'm going to talk about a little bit today called eisegesis. It's just a, a, a big word that theologians use to describe reading something into the text that's not there. Um, and people do this all the time. Um, I've done it plenty in my life. False teachers make lots of money off of that. And, and we have to guard against doing that ourselves. But I say that because God does not need my opinion. And you don't need my opinion. And, and I want the truth of God's word to come out today. So my, my job in studying the Bible, our job in studying the Bible is not eisegesis, putting something into the text, but it's exegesis, taking out from the text what is there and, 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 and rolling with that instead of superimposing our opinions and stuff onto it. And that's what I'm going to try to do today. And sometimes that means taking a minority position on a text. Um, I did that last week. I'm not going to talk about that today, but uh, I'm going to do it again this week, but it, it's not going to be nearly as like controversial. I don't think anyone's going to be like, what do you mean when you said that today? Um, so the bottom line is here, we want to do exegesis instead of eisegesis. We want to make the Bible um, about God speaking to us rather than us trying to speak for God. Uh, but I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. Let's read 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1, and we're going to get into verse 3. And then the next next week we're going to continue in this chapter, God willing, and, and see some more stuff. But this stuff is extremely relevant for us today. Uh, nothing is more relevant than that which gives us hope, and that's what this is all about today. So if you'll stand with me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, or 2, chapter 2, and I'm just going to read through the first part of verse 3. The Word of God says this. Now we ask you, brothers, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken in your mind or be alarmed rather by a spirit or a word or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it has not come unless the apostasy comes first. You may be seated. That is where we're going to go today. And then next week we're going to pick up, God willing, at the second half of chapter, uh, verse 3 and then talk some more about this stuff. But I do want you, if you got your Bible open, look at verse 5. We'll just jump to verse 5 real quick. And he says, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? So Paul is recounting here in 2 Thessalonians something he's already talked to them about before. And if you recall last week, we talked about how he went to Thessalonica, and we find that in Acts 17. And when he got to Thessalonica, he goes to the synagogue of the Jews. That's what he would normally do when he came into another city. He goes to the synagogue of the Jews. He starts with the Jews. He's, he's going to, to proclaim the gospel to the Jews. He's going to reason with them about the Messiah, the Christ. And he's going to say, Jesus is that one that you are looking for. And he does this in Acts 17. It says... <clears throat> for three Sabbaths, three weeks, three, three Sabbaths. So um, they mostly reject him. Now, some believe, but most of them reject them, reject him. And he ends up kind of being run out of town. They, they, they start bringing those who believe before the, uh, the councils and stuff and start, you know, uh, there's a guy named Jason that gets uh, persecuted. And Paul kind of 
leaves town to, to try to make it easier for those in Thessalonica. doesn't really work. They're still persecuted. We saw that last week that this church was persecuted and afflicted. Uh, but Paul makes it clear that while he has that while he was there, he had told him, them about the things that now in 2 Thessalonians 2 he's writing about. So he's clearing up some things in what we just read and what we'll see next week also that he's already talked to them about. Um, and, and specifically, verse 1, the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him. And, and so Paul spoke about that because the subject of the Lord's coming and our gathering together to him should persistently be on all of our minds. I mean, it, it should always be on our minds. Now, truth be told, it's not on all our minds all the time, is it? I mean, it, we, we, we are so bombarded with the here and the now. And when we're thinking about the future, we're, we're probably thinking about, you know, having enough money to retire on and what kind of world our kids and our grandkids are going to inherit. And, and um, you know, some people, you know, kind of dismiss what the Bible says about the future because, you know, maybe it's too complicated. We just don't want to think about it or, you know, it's hard to understand or maybe, maybe, they, maybe we just feel like it's not impacting us right now. And I don't believe any of those things are true. Um. I'm with Paul here. What God has said about the future should permeate our thoughts. It should impact how we think right now. It should impact how we speak right now. It should impact everything we do right now. The decisions we make, everything. Being with Jesus ought to inform everything about us. Yet far more often than not, we're, 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 if we're not focusing on the here and now, we're focusing on what someone did to us last week or last decade, you know? And we're holding on to that stuff. And if we do think about the future, it's again, it's, it's often with an earthly focus. But when we read 2 Thessalonians, and in chapter 2, Paul says that this was a church worth thanking God for. And we read and see that this church's faith was growing abundantly. We, we read that in chapter 1. And, and maybe, just maybe, that had to do with them thinking about what God was going to do for them in their future. They were definitely thinking about these things. But in verse 2, something had happened to, to shake them up. Something had shaken their confidence in what Paul had taught them. And so he asked them, not be shaken from your composure or be alarmed. Something had shaken their faith and it was not a small matter. <clears throat> the verb for, for shaken that Paul uses here. This isn't like me walking up to one of my kids and just kind of jostling them around. Okay, The, 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 the word is used, Matthew puts this word for shaken in Jesus' mouth, for instance. In Matthew 24, when he is talking about the signs of the end of the age, and he's talking about the heavens being shaken. Okay? That's the same word here. When the Holy Spirit comes upon uh, the people in, in Acts 4, the building is shaken. Same word. The, the prison in Acts 16 when Paul is in Philippi. You remember the earthquake? The building is shaken. Same word. So whatever was threatening this congregation was not just a bump in the road, but like an earthquake which threatened their faith which up until now was greatly enlarged. Something had rocked them to their core. And again, for only three weeks, they'd been taught by Paul, and he told them they would be gathered together to Jesus, but now they were shaken in their minds. They were alarmed because in one way or another, false teaching had crept into this church. 
Uh, we're not sure how exactly. Paul wasn't sure how. He says either by a spirit or a word or a letter. And it could have been any combination of the three. It could have been all three. But something had happened. Someone or some people were making it seem as if this false teaching was come, coming from Paul. Look, look, it says, you've received a, a, a spirit or a word or a letter as if from us. So it seems like somebody was being uh, impersonating Paul. And... Whereas the Jews in Thessalonica, Thessalonica uh, had no tolerance for Paul and ran him out of town, the congregation of believers there held him in very high esteem. So probably what happened was whoever it was that decided to introduce this false teaching, instead of trying to discredit Paul because that wasn't going to get them very far with these believers, they tried to pass off their lies as coming from Paul. You know, Paul can't get on FaceTime. He can't get on Zoom and verify in, in a very quick matter, in a, in a very quick um, manner of time, that, yeah, this is me or this is not me. So someone's trying to pass themselves off as Paul. And so the church was worried. They were shaken in their minds that the day of the Lord had come. That's a big, big deal. The day of the Lord... For those of you who don't remember, is a very familiar term in the Bible. It is a very Jewish term uh, for, for the coming of God in, in both salvation and judgment. It is that it is referring to that period of time, that final period of judgment that will culminate in the kingdom and the consummation of all things in Christ. When Israel will, will at the end be restored and God will be glorified and the king will reign from his throne in Jerusalem on the throne of David. The day of the Lord. And, and we see this all over Old Testament literature and it's, it's in the New Testament more than you think too. Someone or some collection of people was trying to convince these believers that it had already come and perhaps they had missed out on all of it. Maybe they were convinced that they were now in the middle of it and, and were missing the blessings to come because, again, this church was being persecuted and afflicted. <clears throat> Whatever the case was, to hear that this day had supposedly come, well, it didn't sound like what Paul had taught them it would be like. Paul's use of the word spirit in, in verse 2 implies that at its root, this was the work of Satan. It was the work of the father of lies, the devil. And of course that's true because all false teaching is fruit of a poisonous tree. All false teaching has its roots in, has God really said the question the serpent posed to the woman in Genesis 3? And Paul knew what, what we, what, what you, what I need to know this morning, and that is, when we lose our hope in the coming of Jesus, we lose our hope of a living Savior. When we lose our confidence that God can see us through the sufferings of this present, we lose our hope of eternal life with Him in the future. Because if He can't see us through, how is He going to get us there? It was no small things for this, for this church to be shaken, thinking the day of the Lord had come, when in so many places in 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 the Bible, and so many, even in this chapter later on, he's going to say, stand firm. And we should always stand firm. Because God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 
one, uh, I think it's one. Uh, there, there was no need for this congregation to be shaken about what was to come. And there is no need for you and I today to be confused about the future either. And that's why Paul wrote in verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you. Let no one in any way deceive you. We see statements like that too many times to count in the Bible. And, and the way to make sure we are not deceived is to be in the Word of God. To not assume we know what it means, but to... What, what does Paul say in, in 2 Timothy 2.15? Study to show yourself approved as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. We've got to be in our Bibles, Jesus says that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So part of this congregation's problem was that they were allowing an alternative opinion to that of Paul, the one God had sent them to to tell them the word of God. They were giving another voice a hearing among them. And when the body of Christ does that, it inevitably runs into trouble. And God has no room for competition. He's not going to be mocked. So how were they being deceived? Well, it's the same way we are often deceived today. There is much confusion amongst believers today with regard to what Paul is talking about in verse 1. Is the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to Him, is He talking about one event? Is He talking about two events? And when is this all going to happen? When will these end times occur? Well, beloved, a great many preachers and scholars whom I respect greatly teach and write that Paul is speaking of one singular event here. One one event that will happen at the very end of the very end. The final consummation when Jesus judges the ungodly. And some of them believe that Jesus will set up his kingdom at that point. There are others who, who believe... <clears throat> that his kingdom is 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 right now and and that he is ruling spiritually from heaven but one day he'll return to earth there there are some who who would make that argument i watched a debate between a buddy of mine and another guy this week where where they were talking about these things and this guy believes that 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 those who who have died are are with Christ in heaven right now ruling the nations with a rod of iron uh, i do not hold that view that does not sound like what's happening in the world today to me at all um I mean, Jesus is God. That, that's not the part I'm disagreeing with. But I don't think he's ruling the nations with a rod of iron yet. I believe he will. I believe he will. But, uh, you know, they equate this with the usage of the day of the Lord in verse 2 to say, you know, that's what's going on here. There are some also who divide the coming and the gathering into two events. And, and one is the rapture of the church, the, the, you know. I'm going to talk about that a little bit this morning. The rapture of the church. And the other is the coming of the Lord to the earth. Two events. But they say that they will happen at the same time at at the end of a period of tribulation. At the end of the day of the Lord. But when when I look at the Bible, I don't think any of those interpretations does justice to the biblical text. I, I take a different view. It's not a view that's not shared by many of you already. That Paul teaches throughout his letters that the coming of the Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him is one event. And it's one event which will happen distinct from the day of the Lord in verse 2. 
before the day of the Lord in verse 2. Or you might say it will, it will be an event that kind of gets those things going. And it is the rapture of the church. Let me put this more simply. In verse 1, Paul is speaking about the rapture of the church. The coming of Jesus to gather all of his people, the body of Christ, to himself. And this will happen before the day of the Lord. This will happen before a period of seven years of tribulation. Now, I talked about this in Sunday school too. We talked about Daniel 9 and the 70th week of Daniel. I've referred to that prophecy so many times in the past couple months in our Sunday school lessons. Did it again this morning if you weren't here. And that's what Daniel is referring to, that 70th week. That's a time of tribulation. We'll talk more about that next week too. And then we also have texts like 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 that talk about the rapture. We'll talk more about those in a minute too. But... One place you don't hear about the rapture most of the time is from where we're at today. 2 Thessalonians 2. Most Bible commentators don't point to 2 Thessalonians 2 as evidence for a rapture of the church. But as I understand it, when when you do a little bit of digging, I think that's what it's talking about. He says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it... That it is the day of the Lord has not come unless the apostasy comes first. Unless the apostasy comes first. Now, I'm going to stop right there because what does he mean by that? That's, that's the crux of what I want to talk about this morning. What is this apostasy Paul is talking about? What is it and what does it have to do with the day of the Lord? Let me just stop here. If you got your Bible open, someone want to tell me what it says unless something comes first? What, is, what does one of your translations have? Rebellion. Rebellion. Anything else? You may see falling away. Falling away from the faith maybe. Something like that. Okay? I'm going to talk about that. And, and I want you to bear with me because I'm going to get a little bit technical. But it's necessary to explain what Paul is saying here. Because when we think of the word apostasy... Um, we normally think of the English definition of that word. And, and the English definition is, well, one dictionary has it as a total desertion or of departure from one's religion, principle, party, cause, etc. So we think about a falling away from the faith, right? A, a rebellion against God. Uh, a falling away from the truth for another religion, some false teaching, a falling away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the sense that practically all of our English translations give today about what's going on in verse 3. The NIV says rebellion. The New Living Translation calls it a great rebellion against God. The English Standard Version says rebellion. <clears throat> and at this point, I'll pause to say that if that is the way that the Greek word here, and the Greek word here is apostasia, if that's the way it should be rendered, that's fine. So be it. It's not going to change one thing I believe about the end times. It's not going to change one thing I believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that's what it says, that's fine. But as I've studied through this, working through 2 Thessalonians, and I just don't think that's the sense that Paul's using that word here, apostasia. 
And here's where we get into the weeds. And, and sometimes you have to get into the weeds to, to, to get them out of the way of the truth so that we can see the truth, okay? The word apostasy, apostasy made its way into our English language sometime in the 1400s, okay? And it is what is called a transliteration. Josh, if you can put that slide up, that'd be great. Um, a transliteration is when one word is brought from one language like Greek to another like English. And, and what I mean, it's not translated, but it's transliterated. So a word is, is kind of created that sounds like the original word that's being brought over. And there are examples of this in Scripture. For instance... You look at this slide, and the Greek word baptizo is the word from which we get baptism or baptist. John the Baptist. But the word in the Greek simply means to immerse. That's one of the reasons why Baptists believe we immerse, we submerge when we're baptizing, right? But the word was not translated into our Bibles. It was transliterated, okay? Same thing with the word diakonos, that second one there. It's translated in our Bibles deacon, but the, the, the meaning of the Greek word is simply servant. And I'm so thankful to be in a church where we've got deacons who are servants. Um, some of us could probably tell horror stories about other churches where maybe they weren't servants, but I don't want to get on that train. That, that train leads to nowhere. Um, but, but here you see the third one. Apostasia. Um, I think that the, the, the process of transliteration rather than translation, and again, forgive me for the weeds, okay? But I think it's done more harm than good when we think about how we study our Bibles because um, as I understand it, this word should not be translated rebellion or falling away because the word simply means in the Greek departure. Departure. That's what it means. It's only used twice in the old in the New Testament. Um, Acts twenty one twenty one. Paul is accused of teaching all of the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. That's so that word to forsake. That's that word apostasia. Um, so what happens in Acts twenty one is Paul is accused of leading the people there to. Just for, forget about Moses, to depart from Moses. So in that sense, it kind of makes sense to, to talk about it as a falling away from one faith to another. In this case, from Judaism to Christianity. That kind of makes sense, but that doesn't mean the word is always referring to a departure from the faith. In Acts 21, it's specifically talking about what's being departed from. We don't get that same sense in 2 Thessalonians. We're not told in the Greek yeah, specifically, what's being departed from. Now, some of our Bibles, again, say a rebellion against God, a falling away from the faith. I want you to know, beloved, that while our, we can trust our Bibles, those words from God or, or from the faith are not in, in the language that was translated. Translators have made a decision there to put those words there to kind of help with what they believe is the meaning. Um, and, and it's my... Opinion, you don't want my opinion, but I'm. That's what's well. That's what's what I believe is well-intentioned eisegesis. Putting something into the text, something that isn't actually there. The word apostasia simply means departure. 
The verb form of it is used 15 times in the New Testament. And it's used to depart from the faith. It's used to depart from iniquity. It's used to depart from ungodly men. It's used to depart from the temple, from buildings, from, from the body, from other people. The word at its core simply means departure. And if, we, if you want me to bring some English translations into it, the first seven translations, English translations of the Bible, the Wycliffe Bible, the Tyndale Bible, going back to 1384, 1526, the famed Geneva Bible, all of them translated apostasia in 2 Thessalonians 2.3 as departure or departing. All of them until the King James Version in 1611. And I'm not here to bash the King James. I'm just saying that most of our English translations ended up taking what, what they did with the King James and going with it. And it's not an insignificant change because Paul also uses the definite article here. I hate to get all grammar on you today, but he doesn't say departure. He says the departure, the apostasy, the departure. And again, I hate to get too grammar. I mean, it's, it's the weeds, right? In the Greek, you don't always have to use the word the to point out something. So when it is used, it, a lot of times it's for emphasis. Paul is saying here, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, the day of the Lord, has not come until, unless the departure comes first. So Paul seems to be speaking of a clear event, something that would be discernible, not a generic falling away kind of departure, but a specific departure event, something like the rapture. Something people would clearly notice. You see, because by the time Paul is writing 2 Thessalonians, there's already a falling away from the faith going on. In Acts 20, Paul is gathered with the Ephesian elders as he's about to go to Jerusalem. And he's saying, <clears throat> I preach to you the whole counsel of God, but be aware because savage wolves are going to come in from among you, not sparing the flock. These savage wolves will come in from among them, from inside, and lead people to depart the faith. Jude wrote about a falling away from the faith. Peter wrote about a falling away from the faith. First and Second Timothy, Paul's also talking about. But don't don't you know? In difficult difficult times will come. For men will be lover, not be uh, lovers of God. They'll be lovers of self, lovers of money. They'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. So a falling away from the faith isn't some clear indistinguishable event that satisfies the way Paul wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But understanding that Paul is referring to the rapture would, and that is what he's talking about here. He's talking about this time that's going to come at some point, and we don't know when. It could be tomorrow. It could be today. It could be by the time I finish this sentence. It wasn't, but we're still here for now. I was reading one guy earlier this year who was trying to make a case for 2030. It doesn't do a whole lot of good to date said. It doesn't do a whole lot of good to predict. I have a book in my library. It's probably in a box in the storage unit right now. 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. The year later, he wrote 89 Reasons Why It Will Happen in 1989. 
I don't think he got to 90. It doesn't do a whole lot of good to speculate. It doesn't do a whole lot of good to date set. But beloved, this is what I'm talking about, our hope. Our hope. Jesus is going to call this through Paul in Titus our blessed hope. Do not be shaken. Do not be alarmed because the day of the Lord has not come yet. It will not come unless the rapture, the departure comes first. And just in case you aren't clear about what the rapture is, one of the places I talked about that it's clear is in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. It's a mystery, by the way, because it wasn't revealed in Scripture at all before Paul wrote about it. And he says, we will not all sleep or or die, but even so, dead or alive, we will all be changed. And he he talks about this also. And I'll tell you what, it's it's probably just a page or two for you. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the... uh, this is the quintessential rapture passage, okay? <clears throat> Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. <clears throat> he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And again, that's a euphemism for death. They're dead. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. There's that word hope again. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So the people who've died, they've not missed out on anything. Okay? They've not missed out on anything. They're not going to miss out on anything. But, verse 16... For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, Think about that as you turn back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Christ is going to come in the clouds, in the sky, in the air, and gather to Himself all those who are a part of His body, the church. Dead or alive. Those who are asleep, the dead in Christ will rise first. We who are alive and remain will be caught up or gathered together with them to meet the Lord in the air. The day of the Lord won't happen until the departure has come first. In other words, Thessalonians, do not be shaken. Do not be alarmed. Russia and Ukraine are going at it. Don't be alarmed. China's going to invade Taiwan eventually. Don't be alarmed. World War III is coming. Don't be alarmed. Don't be shaken from your faith. The day of the Lord will not come unless the departure comes first. You're not going to miss out on anything if you're in Christ. You're not going to miss out on anything if you're in Christ. 
So hope. What did Paul say in chapter 4, verse 18, 1 Thessalonians? Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Do not be shaken. Do not be alarmed. Beloved, I'm here to tell you, when we understand what God is going to do for His church in this, this departure, this rapture, if we're thinking about this, if this is on our minds, if we're remembering this day by day by day, anxiety has no place to go but away. Worry has no place to go but away. There's a reason Jesus says, do not worry. Do not worry. Do not worry. Do not worry. This is very practical. The the return of Christ is very practical for us. It's not just some pie-in-the-sky hope we have. This should impact you every single day of your life. The day of the Lord won't happen unless the rapture comes, unless the departure has come. I'm, I'm convinced that's what Paul's saying here. It just makes more sense to the context. If you just look at the context, let me give you a preview of what we'll talk about next week. The end of verse 3. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. That hasn't happened yet either. So Thessalonians, you haven't missed the day of the Lord yet. I'm convinced that Paul is, is wanting this church to be comforted by the promise they have not missed out on the coming of Christ and are gathering together to him. And this serves to comfort us as well. It's our comfort too. Because rather we're dead or alive when this happens, rather we're asleep or awake, we await our meeting the Lord in the air. It's our blessed hope to be with Jesus. And what did did he say in 1 Thessalonians 4? So we shall ever be with the Lord. It's an incredible promise. So we shall ever be with... So wherever Jesus is... Hello. We we shall ever be with the Lord. And if that's not your comfort today, beloved, if that's not your hope, then I submit to you, you're putting your hope in someone or something that's not going to last. Beloved, we cannot live our lives right now with the right view of God, with the right perspective, if we don't keep Christ in view. And when I I say keep Christ in view, I don't just mean, well, He's in heaven protecting me from up there. He's praying for me. Yes, He is. But that's not the end of the story. We need to keep Christ in view that He's coming to get us. He will come again. To this earth. And then there will be a, a seven, period, uh, seven year period of tribulation. And then, last week in, in, in Revelation 20, we talked about the lake of fire. In, in the first part of Revelation 20, it talks about how he will reign for a thousand years. A thousand years. It says it six times in a matter of like five or six verses. And then, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And that will happen for all who believed in the gospel. So if today you can say, I believe that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And He was raised on the third day 
according to the Scriptures. And He's coming again according to the Scriptures. Then we can live with confidence that He will gather us to Himself. And that's where we're going to stop this morning. And should the Lord not gather us together to Himself this week, next Sunday we'll see that second thing that has to happen. So you can read ahead and stay tuned for that. But until then, again, I apologize if this was clunky. I apologize if it got too weedy. I tried to get some spray and spray off some of those weeds. But folks, we... We sang earlier. Oh, what did we sing? What did we sing? Cornerstone. Cornerstone. Something about a glorious day in one of those songs. In Christ alone. If you're in Christ alone, if you place your trust in Him, then on that glorious day, you will be with Him. And may our trust in Christ give us confidence, both now and and for our future, just like Paul wanted for the church of the Thessalonians, with an eye toward being in Jesus. Do not be shaken by the headlines. Do not be shaken by your, your, your bank account. Do not be shaken by your 401k. Do not be shaken by the uncertainty that fills this world. But live with confidence that you're in Christ and He will take care of you. Do not be alarmed. Do not be shaken. Because God is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And Lord, I'll just right away I'll say for any confusion I I laid upon your people today, <laughs> help us clear out clear out more weeds and help us to see the glory of what you're talking about here. You are going to come. Your son is going to come and gather his body to himself. And we are, we are part of that. So, Father, I thank you that you have seen fit through Jesus Christ to save us. And if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, who's, who doesn't have that hope, Father, I pray that you will give them eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand. And that they will believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has died for our sins. And because he stands in victory, as the song says, sin's curse has lost its grip on all who believe. We thank you, Father. Father.